Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Hey, good morning. It's great, uh, great to be together today and so good to see everyone um, gather as we continue our series uh, talking about uh, the common table. Today I'm gonna do something a little bit different. Uh, we're gonna be walking through a, a pretty large chunk um, from, from uh, second, first, first Corinthians from, uh, in the Bible. And I wanna do this, uh, kind of show you a couple of things and I'll tell you why in just a minute. One of the things that, that you need to understand is people you know, come in and out of our church uh, in different capacities. Um, most obviously through our weekend uh, services, it, it looks like, you know, um, just everything was like, oh, it's a strategic plan and we executed this plan, this is what it became. But this is, this is like the, the culmination or the fruit of just a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of little things consistently over a period of time. There's so many people um, who are a part of our church doing all kinds of things in all kinds of ways all the time that all sort of allows us uh, to be together like this and certainly grateful for all the ways in which you contribute and participate and cause us to become. And I wanna continue to invite you um, into that as we um, consider this idea, this concept that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. And he talks about the church as a body, that we, we matter together. <clears throat> so part of, um, you know, the way he describes this, this is from that passage or one of the passages we'll look at. This is in uh, chapter 12, verse 24, and it says this. It says, but God has put the body together. This is sort of this vision of what it's to be. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division among, in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one is a part of it. <clears throat> One of the things that I you know, have, have thought and tried to wrestle with is can we gather around something, right, that changes or shapes the way we behave? Can we all gather around a thing that changes or shapes the way we have? And this was most evident to me. This, this reality can happen. Uh, in 2018, I went to see um, Def Leppard in Journey. And um, <clears throat> this was an absolute, I took my, my, one of my, my oldest daughter, I uh, took one of our young guys from staff, and I mean, and my uh, uh, son-in-law. And we had the, it was, it was absolutely incredible. Now for me, it was incredible for different reasons than it was for them. But here's what happened. So Def Leppard opened, it was like throwback to the 80s. You literally thought it was like 1988 again. Journey at least realized they were old, which was actually cool. Um, they do have a new lead singer, uh, not Steve Perry. Uh, they found him on YouTube. And I'll tell you, man, if I ever got that gig, I would be out in a second. I'd be singing for Journey in a second. Um, but he was singing, and so that it, was just, it was incredible. So, but here's what happened at the end. There's like, I don't know how many thousand, 10,000, 15,000 people all leaving at the same time. And as we're in this parking deck, um, you know, getting in was crazy and you're in traffic and you're mad and you get there and everything's good. At the end, man, everybody has their radios blasting. We're all singing, don't stop believing. Everybody's just letting people out in traffic. So this is, we're all just one, just we're gathered around something that changed the way we behaved afterwards. The problem is this is short-lived because it only lasts so long. And then if someone tells you to do something that you don't wanna do, right? You're mad or someone believes differently than you or voted differently than you, then you're mad. 
And the challenge isn't can we gather around something that causes us to live differently. Can we actually build our lives upon something that can sustain what's required for us to do that? And this, this is what the picture of the church is to be, and what this, this sort of radical reorientation is and what the gospel does for us. Most everyone in our culture, most everybody that you talk to would say, oh, unity is a good thing. If we could be more unified as a country, if we could be more, everybody would say it's a good thing. The problem is, is what is the foundation that most of us depend upon in order for us to find unity? You know what it is, right? It's real simple. That we would all be unified if you thought like me. True? Right? If I thought like you, that, that's, that's our default. If you were like me, and then here's the, the other problem is we have an entire sort of communication strategy and system that seeks to divide us further and further and further apart in order to sell us things or to get us to vote a particular way. And it's all based on spliced demographics that continue to divide us to make you afraid or to make you mad enough to preserve your way. And if you, provide, if you pre preserve your way, it's gotta come against or at the expense of someone else. And so <clears throat> enter the gospel. The gospel enters into this, this is where God came to earth. He came uh, and dwelt among us. He became flesh incarnate, right? This is Jesus Christ coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins, to bring forgiveness, to save sinners, and to establish the way of life that he has intended for us all along. That's, that's what the gospel is. And, and what you begin to see is out of this sort of chaotic entrance of the gospel in the first century, this emergence, we looked at this last week, this emergence of these followers of Jesus from all walks of life, the rich, the poor, the slaves, the free, men, women, all walks of life, all the classes and delineations that were all sort of adhered to in culture, that were just the way things were, somehow there was another way in which these things didn't exist. There was a unity that was, being, that was being pursued in the followers of Jesus, and it was imperfect. It was imperfect. So that's why I want us to look at this, because what we have is a letter. In Acts chapter 2, last week, we looked at this. And we talked about there's a way in which you and I learn how to live and cooperate together in some kind of organized and systemized way that is all based on what it is that we are willing to be devoted to or to, vote, to devote ourselves to. And we learned this, that last week we said our posture and what we're devoting ourselves to, the, the, the idea for us is this declaration that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, and that we are learning to live underneath his rule and his reign. And that our posture is that we walk towards Jesus and his lordship. Right? We're not trying to get you to make a decision so you'll be sure where you go when you die. That's a, that's a small piece of it. What we're trying to do is to reorient us into a whole different way of life, of life to follow Jesus, to, to walk towards his lordship, uh, towards Jesus and his lordship. That's, that's the idea. So that's, that's the first thing we're trying to do. We looked at this last week. That's the implications of the gospel. That's what we believe is happening as we learn how to do this together, to devoting ourselves to walking towards, and I would use the phrase struggling towards, wrestling towards Jesus and his lordship, and also wrestling towards this idea of community and our unity. 
Now, at Port City, if you were here last week, I said this, but, but I, don't, I don't pretend by any stretch that we are the only way to do church or be the only game in town. I don't, none of that is what I mean. But I do mean that there has to be a level of commitment and willingness for us to be together and to take responsibility for what we have been entrusted with. We're gonna talk more about that over time, but it's what we devote ourselves to. And then in Acts, this passage, it says they devoted themselves to these four things, the apostles' teaching in that we were always postured as learners to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, or this, this willingness to stay in, to be committed to one another, to, to it, it's, 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 it's a knowing, it's a participating, it's a, a willingness to share or avail ourselves. There was the idea of food, right? To breaking of the bread, that we would share what we have and avail what we have hospitably, to one another. And the last was to the prayers, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers, um, which would be, the way we talk about this is the practices. These are the things that we would do together to orient ourselves and to give allegiance to Jesus and who he is. That's the picture of the church. And there, there's a lot of ways. We sing together, we share communion together, we do small groups together, we study the Bible together. All these are practices that we're learning. We pray together. These are practices that we learn to share together. What you see first and foremost is this is not designed for you to go do your quiet time and me to go do my quiet time and then show up on Sunday, sit next to each other and then go repeat the same thing over again. There's a cooperation, there's a collaboration, there's a willingness for us to gather around something and to give authority to something that will therein dictate our unity. And this is, this is why we wrestle towards it. This is why we wrestle towards it. And what you find here, this is what I love about um, the way the scriptures are given to us. This is a, actually an example, we're gonna do is an example of what you see here. Because you'll find that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. You would find, uh, uh, find that they were committed to one another. They were practicing various aspects of what they had learned from Jesus in his way. And they were having and sharing, breaking of the bread. There was a lot of this uh, a communal sort of way of life. And what we have, and this is where I think a lot of us, because our Bibles are often leather bound and they got really cool pages, we, we think that they were just dropped out of the sky. They weren't. What you have particularly, and this is how we would interpret this today, when it comes to being learners and devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we have them contained for us in the New Testament of our Bibles. Right? That's what this is. We have real-time records and recordings of what was actually going on in the first century as this movement emerged. This is staggering, at least for me to think about. It's, it's ancient history. Um, you have the four eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who testify and bear witness to the life of Jesus, to his death and his resurrection. That's most of what's contained, his teachings in the gospels. And then after that, you have all these, this collection of letters. And these letters were basically written to the local assemblies of Jesus' followers with questions about, okay, we know about Jesus. Now, what does it mean to live in light of his rule? How do we handle this or this or this? Like this is real time trying to figure out how do we do what Jesus has been asking of us or how do we experience what Jesus came to make available to us? And so you see this in um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. That's where we'll start. Now, one of the things that I do 
is whenever I'm reading a letter, because none of you ever get a letter in the mail and you pull it out and you look midway through and you read like two sentences out, Instagram that you read uh, two sentences out of this letter and then go on about your day, right? You usually read the letter, you start at the beginning and you read all the way through to the end. That's the way letters are intended to be. The Bible is no different. First Corinthians is just a long letter. And it starts off with Paul talking about, hey, greetings, I'm glad we're here. Hey, the, the, you know, God chose the foolish things of the wise, to, I mean, the foolish things to shame the wise. I mean, he goes through this whole thing in 1 Corinthians. And then he gets to, and what people believe and scholars believe is that basically 1 and 2 Corinthians, um, <clears throat> they weren't written like in chapters, in verses, that was all added later. And more than likely, this was written in multiple blocks of time. And they believe there are portions of this that are probably missing from our view. They're not, we don't have them. Because it looks like Paul is answering questions that they had about what was happening. Does that make sense? So they're like, he's writing him a letter. I said, well, what about this? They write him a letter back. What about this? And he's like, okay, well, let me talk about this. And then it comes back. And then you get it compiled into First uh, and 2 Corinthians. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. There's all kinds of sexual chaos, there's all kinds of money chaos, there's all, I know we can't relate to that, but that's what's happening in the first century. And this letter feels a lot like it could be written um, today. And so there's even this, this abuse, and if you open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 17, you'll see a, um, a heading that says, correcting an abuse in the Lord's Supper. And we, the problem is in America, we think, oh, this is like a textbook and we're looking for a topic and so we open up to that topic and then we read about that topic. And that's, that's not how this is intended to be delivered. We are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching to do this together to discern how we can experience this way of life that Jesus has made available. That, that makes sense, right? So what I always do is, as I sit down and I lay out, um, I print it out on cardstock because I like Sharpie markers. And uh, Sharpies will bleed through uh, regular old copy paper. So I print it on cardstock and then I just lay it out. I have a drafting table in my office. I just lay it out across my desk so I can read it kind of in large chunks to see and understand what is happening. And so what's happening um, is that basically <clears throat> there's some weird stuff about men and women. Uh, we're not gonna talk about that today. Um, we will, but not today. And then, then he gets into what's happening. Evidently, there was something happening when they would gather together and they would share a meal. So they're doing this. They're breaking their bread and they're trying to do the practices. And some of what it seems that they're doing is trying to break the bread. And part of their meal, they were making it about the Lord's Supper, which gives us insight that in the very earliest days when the church was gathered, they were celebrating this, this meal, this Lord's Supper. And it wasn't like a wafer in a shot glass of grape juice. It was... It was a part of the meal. So it was very, very early on in this movement of Jesus. And then here's how Paul writes about what he's hearing about them. He says, hey, Paul, we've got some problems. Can you weigh in on this? And Paul says, of course, I will be glad to. Um, <clears throat> Paul was a Pharisee, a Jewish, brilliant, uh, high-level uh, religious official who encountered Jesus and then devoted his life to the spread of the gospel. That's what happened. That's all in the book of Acts. So he's writing this letter to this church in Corinth outside of Greece or in Greece um, in uh, the first century. And here's what he says to them. This is uh, after dear, you know, uh, dear Corinthians, love you guys. Hope you are doing well. Here's what he says in verse 17. And then following directives, directives which means that they had asked him about something. What you're asking me 
in the following things you've asked me about, I have no praise for you. That's a great opening line, isn't it? It means you're about to get roasted. For your meetings do more harm than good. When you guys get together, y'all cause more chaos and more problems than if you just didn't meet together. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. And then he adds this line, I think this is a little sarcastic. He says, no doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you God likes better. And we would never do that, I get it. But basically, here's what's happening, because then he goes on and he says, when you show up, some of you who are poor, right, um, some of you who are rich, you've already eaten and had your fill, and you basically make it really known that those who don't have, don't have, and that they don't really fit here. And that those who are coming in that are women, you have this, and those of you who are coming in your slaves, you have this. There's all these different delineations, and you guys basically just exasperate those divisions. The way you are organized, the way you are unaware of each other, the way you don't accommodate one another just continues to exasperate what everybody feels all the time in the world anyway. Now think about this. I know this is hard for us to grapple, but can you imagine the church, right? The church being a place where the divisions that exist outside of the church get accentuated and exasperated? Can you imagine that? That people would, would, would actually use the church to continue to perpetuate divisions that exist in the world around? I know we can't imagine that, right? It happens all the time. Like it's all of politics. It's all of that. And what Paul is saying, this is terrible. This is a terrible way for you as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, to act. And he says, and you share this meal together, and basically not to get too mired in the weeds, but basically they were just allowing the haves to kind of govern things, the have-nots to take their proper place, and there was no cooperation or consideration for the plight of people who struggled differently from them. And this is exactly the thing that Jesus had spent his entire ministry and incarnation undermining that the world did. We've talked about this a lot. And so he says, the night that Jesus took the bread, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. And then he says this, so whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You, you, and it's very specific. You're proclaiming the Lord's death, this willingness of us to sacrifice ourselves for what it is that Jesus wants, for what it is that God intends. And then this is where it gets good. Some of you who grew up in the church, um, you've heard this passage, verse 27. So this is where I wanna spend some time. <clears throat> so then whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. How many of you guys have heard that? I was like 10 years old, heard that in a, in a communion service. If you drink this in an unworthy manner, poof. I remember just like, I'm going to hell, that's it, I'm dead. Like, I remember not being like, what does this even mean? This is exactly what it says. If you, if you do this in an unworthy manner, you ought to examine yourself. You need to put the screws on and see if you have thought anything that you shouldn't have ever thought. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then he says this, verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. No pressure there, right? That's why some of you are weak and sick and have died. 
what, what is he, what, can you imagine if I did that on Sunday? This is why you died, right? If you're just like, you're like, whoa. Like, what is he saying? How do we wrestle this out? Because he says very clearly that if we, if we, if we participate in this way without discerning something, we're, we're causing a problem. And here's, here's what I think it is. What does he say? And I think put, put that verse back up there. He says, if we, for those who eat and drink without what? Without discerning what? The body of Christ. What is he talking about? Us. If you participate in this and you don't accommodate or pay attention to what is happening around you, you're going to drink judgment on people. And the way I think of judgment, there, there's certainly providential judgment in the Bible. There's certainly that. But a lot of the ways judgment and God's wrath is talked about, and you can see this in Romans chapter one, you can see in a lot of places, is you can actually see it in the Old Testament. But what, what God's wrath is, isn't just his, his punishment. Boom, you're, you, I'm gonna smite you if you do this. Um, <clears throat> like Maui was gonna do to Moana, right? I'll smite you. Um, it, it wasn't just punishment. And we read these passages like God is threatening us. If you do this in an unworthy manner, I'm gonna smite you. And so we organize to not do those things. And when we position ourselves not to do the things that God doesn't want us to do, we think that's faith and we think that's the church and it's not, it's not. So the way judgment would often be viewed is where God removes his protective hand and he gives humans over to the implications of the decisions that they have made. Does that make sense? So he's like, this is what Romans 1 is all about. I'm gonna rem- you, you, have, you have wanted this, I'm just gonna give you over to your own desires. And if we're honest, right, if we were to get our own desires, we would wind up in a heap of trouble. And that's exactly what he's saying here. And what he says is that when you don't discern other people, you cause harm. You hurt other people that leads them into places where eventually, right, it's sickness, weakness, it's death. It just continues to perpetuate all the problems that already exist. And he's basically saying you should be different. And then in verse, he goes on, and then in verse uh, chapter 12, he then just turns into this. And we think this is like some kind of spiritual gifts course where he's like gonna say, oh, if you have this gift, you should do this job. And you have this, it's not what he's saying. The very beginning of this, this passage, I'm sorry, let me, let me finish this before I get too far ahead. Verse 31, this is important. But, so he says, you, you, you cause harm because you don't pay attention and discern what's really happening. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, uh, in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so we will not be finally condemned with the world. Then he moves on into verse uh, 12, uh, chapter 12, and he says, now about the gifts of the Spirit, my brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is where the English language doesn't really get this because he doesn't say, it doesn't say now about the gifts of the Spirit. It says not about spiritual things. Now about spiritual things, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say, Jesus, be accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And then he starts in to this metaphor of the body of Christ. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to gather, and we're not actually eating food today, but you will be. 
And we're trying to posture ourselves as learning from what the disciples have said. And what you begin to see here is that no one can, can be devoted to Jesus inauthentically. You can use him to get your way, but that's not the same as Jesus is Lord. You can say, oh, I received Jesus and now I get to do and blah, blah, blah. That's not Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord as he gets to rule and reign over my life. And I'm gonna build on that kind of foundation that allows me to cooperate and participate with what he intends to do in the world. And so when he says this, right, when he's asking us this, he says that this can only happen by some work that happens in us. Our allegiance to Jesus can only happen by some work in us to, to struggle and strain towards Jesus and his lordship requires something from us and of us to strain towards cooperation, community, and the unity of this body requires something from us. It requires something of us. And so this is the foundation. This, this foundation, uh, this confession is our foundation that it is Jesus is Lord, right? This is what Megan Good wrote, and I've quoted this about 30 times, that she says the main politic of the church is Jesus is Lord. And this would have been a politically loaded phrase because what the world said was Caesar is Lord. And so they're, they're setting this up as a fundamentally different way of operating and cooperating as humans in a culture, in a world. The, the main politic of the, church is, uh, of the church is Jesus is Lord. And the place this gets worked out is the church where we voluntarily give our allegiance and devotion to that confession. And so this becomes our hope and our foundation for unity. And then what he says is this. If you keep going, he just talks about the body over and over again. Verse 12 of chapter 12. Just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And we all know this, right? You look at your fingers and your hands and your nose and your eyes. For we were all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles or slave or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. And then he goes on and says, because you're not an eye, you can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. You can't, you can't pull rank because you think yours is more pretty than someone else's. You can't pull rank because you think yours is more valuable than someone else's. That's not the way this works in this particular way of life. There's something else at play. And that's when he says this. In chapter 12, verse 24, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Right, this is a choice. We live in a culture where everybody celebrates platform and prestige and popularity and all those things. We have a choice to honor and value one another in much more nuanced and differentiating ways than just what we do. That's what he's talking about that God has put them together in such a way that we could honor one another for what we bring to the body, for how we cooperate together. And the reason is, verse 25, so that what? So there should be no division. That we cooperate in such a way as to eliminate division in the body. Is that hard? It's impossible. It is only when we learn to acknowledge and live with the Lord, under the Lordship of Jesus that this becomes a possibility for us to experience. I believe it is. And I believe it's what the world is looking for. There should be no division in the body, but each, parts, each of its parts should have equal concern for the other. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts rejoice with it. 
Now you are the body of Christ and each one is a part of it. What we need to learn is the kind of concern for one another that produces unity. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And we live in a culture that values individual rights over anything else. So this is going to rub against a lot of what we know, a lot of what we believe, and a lot of actually, honestly, what makes our country really, really good. We have to decide, right, who is going to govern us. That's what it's gonna come down to. And the the key to me was this passage. And this is what I wanna just kind of give to you and we're gonna kind of participate. I wanna just, I wanna put it in your brain more than anything else. Because some of this is gonna be a little bit different than what you have heard. But there's this, this verse in chapter 11, verse 21, after they said, hey, you're gonna drink judgment. If you don't discern the body of Christ, or you're gonna drink judgment. Then he says this in verse 31. But if we were more discerning in regard to ourselves. Right, self-awareness is a big thing. You know this, right? Some of you are like, no, and it's obvious, right? <laughs> it's obvious. People are not very self-aware. Most of the time we're looking at our phones, walking around, driving, doing whatever we're doing. We're not aware of much of what we bring to things or what's happening around us. And that's true as individuals. It's also true as collective. If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not keep harming and causing and creating more division. And what if that were true? What if we, just our little crew, just worked to become more discerning of ourselves such that we brought more and more unity to the world around us? That's what's at stake here. And there's two ways I wanna suggest um, to do this. Number one is what we use, I use the phrase, we use the phrase right here to contend for another. To contend for another. It literally means to to stretch with or to strive with. We know that we live in a world where people suffer all kinds of things. Sometimes it's injustices done to them by circumstance or some other uh, thing outside of their control. Other times it's consequences of actions. Other times it's no fault. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why people struggle and deal with things. And to contend for another is to enter into that place with them, to feel what they feel. When one part of that body suffers, we enter into that and we feel it as well. To contend. This is something that I've been learning to do. Part of my responsibility as a pastor is to pray for our congregation, people in our church. I have a list of names. Every week I write their names on my list. I hand write them out to enter into what that person is going through to try to think about what it is like to be diagnosed, what they've been diagnosed with, to lose the person they've lost, to deal with, and I just try to enter in and to contend for them. But there are other places, and friends of mine, our younger staff, we got guys on our staff, men and women on our staff, who came to our church as college students, and most of what they have learned and grown up in is a part, a product of our church. And to watch them walk and to watch their faith mature is, 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 is humbling and exciting. It gives me so much hope. Some of them, I did their weddings. I watched their kids graduate from high school. It's, it's astounding that I'm this young and have done that, right? And, but it, but there, there's a thing that happens in that you begin to realize, as I, I realize, is that so much 
of my own struggle, right, with contending for other people is limited by the things that happen in my own life. And for some of us, you think that, oh, in order to contend for others, I've got to be perfect. I've got to have my act together. I've got to be free from whatever these struggles are. And the truth is, in my experience, I don't know that you ever, the struggle never goes away completely. And what I would ask is maybe you're here and you could detect, is there a sin pattern or a potential sin pattern that if given the right circumstance could get into your life and undermine your relationship with Christ? You know what I'm talking about? Just me? I think everybody has one, right. There's something somewhere, and, and oftentimes I find myself wrestling confession and repentance in these places. What I've learned to do in this is to learn how to contend, to say, Lord, in, in, in my struggle, I want you to let me be faithful for this person. I put a name in there. For some of our younger staff who bear responsibility, Lord, would you, would you use my struggle and would you use my faithfulness? And would you use the victory that you were given to me to be victory for them in places where they don't even know they're gonna struggle yet? To contend for another person. That ratchets up your own will to sort of fight because you recognize, right, that somehow in my own struggle, I recognize that my personal holiness, my faithfulness actually affects the holiness and the faithfulness of people that I love and care for that my thoughts and attitudes and actions and my reputation contribute to yours or they undermine it. And that's true of all of us. And so we enter in and we do this, you know, not just for ourselves, but on behalf of one another. I have, I have two daughters from the time they were born. And it took me a while, probably five or six or eight years to learn how to contend. But that's what I have done for both uh, the people who would ultimately be their boyfriend's and for one of them has married, I would, I would contend for them. I would say, Lord, what you were doing in my life, the struggles that I'm facing, would you let me, would you use these to contend so that their faith would be strengthened? Before I'd even met them, it's contending for, it's, it's to develop sort of a, a fierceness for what's at stake in our unity and what we need from one another to have a to concern, a disproportionate concern for each other. This brought again a whole new level to the way I've learned and am learning to pray for our church and our congregation. And number two, it says if we were more discerning in regard to ourselves, and the best phrase I've come up with, I'm gonna come up with a better one, is reflective input. Reflective input or reflective feedback. Here's the thing. Everybody has an opinion. True? If you don't believe me, just look on social media. And what I found is that most opinions that people have, this is generalization, but most opinions that people have are not reflective, they are reactive. They heard something, saw something, got mad, and then spouted off about something else. Or when you go in and someone asks you to fill out a comment card or ask your opinion about something, you critique them or critique your experience based on whether you liked it or disliked it. And reflective feedback, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we might see some things that we don't readily see just because we're scaling everything, whether it's good or bad, did this work for me, did it not work for me? And it's to learn how as a congregation, we have to have feedback. We have to understand what's happening in our congregation and in us as our experiences with our church. We have to understand that. But we don't just need opinions about whether something was good or bad. We need reflective input. We need to say, Lord, what are you doing in us? We need for you to say, Lord, what are you doing in us? What is happening here? Could we be more discerning of ourselves? 
with regard to ourselves, who we are, and in doing so, actually begin to cooperate and build something that builds a sense of unity that human beings all long for. But it has to be done, right, on the foundation of the lordship of Jesus, of his rule and reign in your life, in my life, and our willingness to bring our lives into submission to him and then our willingness to cooperate with one another for the sake of what he longs to do, that there should be no division in the body. Remember we learned last week? The body builds itself up in love as each part shows up and does its thing. So I want you to do two things. This week I want you to consider who and how can I contend another. Maybe you need someone to contend for you and you just need to ask. You just need to reach out and say, hey, this has been a tough week. Can you, could you like strive with me in this? This has been a struggle. Number two is when you're thinking about our church, which hopefully you think about it from time to time, right? Don't just go, oh, that was terrible. Oh, that was good. And I say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? And let's learn together how we can discern with regard for ourselves so that we can do something distinctly different that's required, that's needed in the world in which we live. That's 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, all right? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being a faithful king, a suffering servant. Thank you for demonstrating what love looks like. Thank you for making a way for us to participate as bearers of your image. Father, I do ask that you would help us as a church learn how to share concern for one another in a, this complex in a place like this. But you would help us to learn how to do it. Father, we would contend for one another. We would learn how to discern what you are doing in and through our church in ways that allow us to hear what it is that you long for us uh, to hear what you are telling us. We could respond appropriately. So I ask all this, Father. I believe it's what you want. And I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Amen.